Hello again and welcome back to the Australian Histories Podcast. Today we're taking a little more lightweight look at an interesting and ongoing infrastructure project devised to control and protect agricultural prospects across the country. We're going to look at the development and operation of the massive dingo fence, a wild dog exclusion barrier that actually began its life attempting to control the movement of rabbits. But first, a big thank you to those folks who took the time to leave me lovely reviews in the last month. There have been some really inspiring and positive five-star reviews there, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Your kind words keep my motivation high, and it really helps in promotion and boosting discovery for other folks who might enjoy these stories, like us. Our listening community continues to grow, and it's really great to see. So again, many thanks. Okay now, let's move on to those crazy old fences. I think credit for the longest wall must definitely reside with the Chinese. The Great Wall, or rather a series of walls, dates back to the 7th century and were later joined and replicated by newer sections over time. Some parts of the wall were made from mud bricks and other natural and less permanent materials. Other sections were made of mortared, kiln-fired bricks or stone. The sum of the Great Wall structures once covered over 21,000 kilometres, just over 13,000 miles, which served as border controls across the Silk Road trading routes, as territory boundaries, and as defensive barriers throughout the centuries. Some very impressive sections still remain intact today. Australia, though, can lay claim to the longest continuous fences, including the rabbit-proof fence in the west, covering more than 3,250 kilometres, or close to 2,020 miles. And the old barrier fence in Queensland, which at one time ran to 5,680 kilometres within the state, made the entire cross-state barrier fence total 8,600 kilometres in length. That's 5,350 miles at that time. The present dingo fence, a continuous line running from the South Australian coast roughly northeast towards the Queensland coast, zigzagging across a still massive and impressive 5,400 kilometres, that's 3,350 miles or thereabouts. The dingo fence generally marks the agricultural boundary between sheep and cattle country here. The South Australian end starts right at the cliff edge, above the Great Australian Bight, west of Fowler's Bay on the Nullarbor, and apparently terminates at a paddock gate near Jimbor in southern Queensland. I'll place a couple of map images on the website, but note that the actual precise position of the fencing often changed over the many years it's been in operation. Interestingly, I did have a look on Google Earth, and you can certainly see straight stretches of fencing tracks scarring the outback from satellite images in many places. These barrier fences were mainly intended to control two specific and quite different animals the introduced rabbit pest, and the dingo, hoping to stop the spread of the rabbit across the country and to protect the sheep from dingo attack on the proofed side of the fence. But the idea of the fence as a solution, and the practice of them in place, is not without controversy for a number of reasons, and we'll explore a little of the history of their construction and operation in this episode. It's a little bit hard to put a date on the start of construction for either fence, really, as both developed over time and came together, expanding and strengthening existing sections of stock and boundary fencing, initially put in place by landholders. So we might briefly look first at the rabbit-proof fences in Western Australia. Overseas listeners may not know, but the rabbit, which can be seen in many places in Australia in large numbers, is not native to Australia but was introduced, probably coming along with the first British settlers who began arriving en masse after 1788. In Broomhall's 1991 History of Number One Rabbit-Proof Fence, he suggests, Of all the plagues introduced into Australia, the rabbit was by far the most destructive. He surmises that though rabbits were probably sent with the first fleet, kept caged or on arrival kept in fenced warrens as food animals, 
the plague which grew across the mainland Australia more likely had its origin with a consignment of 24 healthy animals that were brought in by the now notorious Thomas Austin to the Geelong area of Victoria for hunting and sport. Austin was supposed to have said, quote, Ew, the introduction of a few rabbits could do little harm and might provide a touch of home in addition to a spot of hunting, unquote. Oh, so right there I'd like to reach out and slap him. What a shame he couldn't just take up darts or something. This act brought no end of pain and disaster to the expanding farming communities across Australia and causes ongoing ecological damage, which is evident and problematic in some areas to this day. But the rabbit was just one of a number of pests which have devastated our land and displaced or exterminated our native animals the fox being another example brought in for sport. In the more arid areas, feral goats, wild boars and camels, imported by cameleers in the 1840s to do the outback hauling, and now feral in large numbers, all have a negative impact. And right up there as one of the most accomplished hunters, devastating our small mammals and birds, is the domestic cat allowed to roam outdoors, or turn feral and living in the bush. Despite the Australian countryside looking similar to an English park, to those earlier visitors to the southeast coast, as suggested by Bill Gamage in The Biggest Estate on Earth, How Aborigines Made Australia, this continent has an environment very different to the one the British had come from, and it was much more fragile than they could have imagined. The Indigenous Australians had developed their own management protocols over many tens of thousands of years and the land was thus primed to respond to that management regime. Our soils had never had animals with hard hooves trampling on it. The native animals, such as kangaroos, often had breeding regimes that were highly sensitive to the conditions, responding, for example, to drought or flood, rather than simply to a standard fixed breeding season. The topsoil here is generally thin and prone to erosion, so even the introduction of the usual stock animals, like cattle and sheep, had an immediate impact on the soil and water runoff, particularly if stocked in high numbers. So the introduction of a prolific, burrowing and voracious root-damaging creature like the rabbit was a disaster. With local potential predators largely culled and already cleared out of stock areas, there were virtually no checks on the rabbits. And they do, as you know, breed like rabbits. By 1867, the numbers had increased to such an extent that Parliament declared them a plague, threatening the livelihood of pastoralists and farmers and completely out of control. The rabbit plague was spreading right across the continent. The mild conditions in Australia allowed them to breed all year round and within 10 years of release, they were shooting and trapping 2 million per annum and still making no dent in the numbers. With the mechanical trapping and shooting, ripping the warrens and poisoning barely making any difference, and with rabbit numbers continuing to grow, the plague was moving further north and west. By the late 1880s, the New South Wales government offered a reward for the development of effective control methods. But actually nothing really made an impact on any scale until the introduction of the myxomatosis virus in the mid-20th century. In the early years, some farmers had been successful in fencing off their properties with rabbit-proof perimeter fencing, and by the end of the 1890s, some of these fences were beginning to be deliberately joined up. Early in the 1900s, the Western Australian government began building barrier fencing, though they were never entirely successful for a number of reasons. The fencing also needed to extend substantially underground to stop the burrowing, and of course gates also had to be rabbit-proof and kept closed. Even a few rabbits getting through and breeding up could negate the usefulness of any work undertaken. The three major long fences in Western Australia covered 3,250 kilometres, that's 2,020 miles, and cost $250 per kilometre, according to the centenary publication of the fence's history. So, to contemplate that massive outlay, we can see just what a devastating problem to productivity the rabbit was. The notion of a rabbit-proof fence may well have come to your attention via the wonderful and harrowing 2002 film The Rabbit-Proof Fence. Based on a book by Doris Pilkington Garimara, 
telling her own stolen generation story and recalling her removal from her family as a child under the assimilation policy which saw mixed-race children separated from their families and placed on missions. The film tells of the story of her nine-week, 2,400-kilometre walk. That's 1,500 miles with two younger children along the rabbit-proof fence to find her way back to her community in the north while being pursued by the authorities. It's a truly amazing story and an excellent film adaptation, worth chasing down if you've never seen it. The rabbit-proof fences, particularly the largest Western Australian one, were pretty impressive structures really and may well have helped in slowing the progression of the rabbit plague into the west. But Australia still does not have complete control of the rabbits, despite a couple of eras where the biological controls, like myxomatosis and the later Khaleesi virus, managed to reduce numbers substantially. While the overall population is probably at last at a manageable level, in some areas, and in particular seasons, they are still a real problem for the landscape. Sections of the Western Australian rabbit-proof fence are still maintained and it also operates as a barrier for the emu and for other native and introduced pests. The dingo, of course, is a whole other problem for the pastoralists. Though a fairly recent arrival on the Australian continent, the dingo is generally considered native now, though that does still provoke discussion. It was probably introduced into Australia's northern mainland around 4,000 years ago, accompanying Asian visitors, though more recent DNA evidence might suggest a date as far back as 10,000 years. Percival and Wesney write that dingo tracks were reported around the Gulf of Carpentaria in 1523, the northern West Australian coast in 1688, and the East Coast in 1770 by the various exploring mariners recording their landfall at those times. There is evidence that over time there were ecological changes following the dingo's arrival, and there certainly was contact and cultural exchange between the long-settled Aboriginal peoples of the North and Asian visitors certainly over thousands of years. The dingo's genetic origin reaches back to the Asian grey wolf, and there would have been varying levels of domestication and coexistence amongst the Aboriginal people, including some using the dingo to assist in game hunting. That idea is also controversial, though, with others suggesting, rather than co-hunters, they might have been closer to pets, warming beds, scavenging food in the camps, and acting as guards for the group. But the dingo was certainly well able to adapt to the Australian conditions, and it spread right across the continent... By the time the British arrived in 1788 and began using the land to run sheep and other European stock, the dingoes were already filling the niche of apex predator in most areas, and they bothered the new pastoralists as a threat to their livestock. The Australian dingo looks much like a large dog, albeit with a rather bushy tail. It has a bigger head-to-body ratio, has upright ears and longer teeth, its colour is generally light ginger with white feet, though there is a shade range, apparently, depending on its home habitat. It was Australia's largest carnivore mammal, at least at the time the British arrived, with the now extinct Tasmanian tiger coming in a close second, with its massive jaws and teeth. Though, without checking, I think that was restricted to the southern island of Tasmania in habitat. While the pure dingo is now pretty much absent from the southeast due to the eradication drives and the barriers since colonisation, it's still pretty common in all but the most severely arid parts of the rest of Australia. If you're travelling or camping in the outback, you may well spot one, or hear the howling at some point anyway, though in the wild they will generally avoid contact with humans. It's a very striking animal, but don't be fooled into thinking it can be treated like a domestic dog they can be quite a dangerous problem where they've become acclimatised to humans. So more on that later. The Australian Museum's Dingo Fact Sheet claims, quote, Dingoes are opportunistic carnivores. Mammals form the main part of their diet, especially rabbits, kangaroos, wallabies and wombats. When native species are scarce, they are known to hunt domestic animals and farm livestock. This makes them very unpopular with pastoralists, Failing this, the dingo will eat reptiles and any food source it can find, including insects and birds. Scavenging at night, the dingo is a solitary hunter, but will form larger packs when hunting bigger game, 
unquote. My other reading indicated that packs were usually juvenile dogs and they might live as a family group at various times before the pups find their own territory. We can see how pastoralists could find predation from dingoes a problem, particularly in lambing season. And some dingoes do not just kill one lamb for a feed, but might attack numerous animals, leaving some alive but disabled with their bellies and necks savaged. Again, other readings suggest this is often the juvenile dog packs hunting, but not always. Some farmers have identified individual dingoes that will act this way on their own. Many pastoralists built sturdy barrier fencing to exclude the dingo and then hunted out any existing within their boundary. Some suggest that not all dingoes would be a threat though, perhaps only one in ten taking an interest in the sheep. Percival and Westney quote a couple of pastoralists reflecting, quote, It's not every dog that kills. I've shot dogs, I've trapped dogs, as poor as anything, in good sheep country. They haven't got a feed inside them, unquote. And, quote, I've known dogs who've been inside the fence for eight years and never killed a sheep. And I've seen one dog kill 200 sheep in one night, unquote. In an ideal world, perhaps it would be possible to eradicate only those dingoes to solve the farmer's problem. But this is contentious, and identifying which dingoes are a problem might be an impossible task. Even with the dingo fence in operation, some areas are now reporting ongoing problems from wild feral dog attacks inside the dingo fence, and baiting, trapping and shooting wild dogs is still being undertaken in some areas. One interesting thing about the dingo is that it very rarely barks though they are known to howl. And I've heard this myself. It's quite a spooky noise in the outback. The museum fact sheet further claims, quote, they tend to howl, particularly at night, in an effort to attract pack members or to ward off intruders. Other forms of communication include scent rubbing, defecating and urinating on objects such as grass tussocks to mark territorial boundaries, unquote. So more and more familiar creatures, somewhat like our domestic dogs then, and indeed dingoes and dogs can interbreed. Many think that the wild dogs causing the most grief are probably these hybrids now. Dingoes only produce offspring once a year, usually in autumn with around five pups to a litter. While domestic dogs can often manage two cycles each year, of varying litter size depending on the breed. Dingo gestation is about nine weeks, and while the pups are milk-fed for the first few weeks, as they develop, the mother will regurgitate her food to improve their diet before they can hunt for themselves. <laughs> now, that's what I call a devoted mother-child bond. So disgusting. <laughs> Sometimes I find nature completely repellent. <laughs> For those unfamiliar with Australia, I could make a giant generalisation here just to help with your understanding. The southeastern region of the continent generally holds the best and most reliable agricultural grazing land, and probably the majority of the sheep runs. North and west, the land is generally scrubbier and more marginal, becoming more desert-like in the centre and the northwest, and those areas are usually put to massive cattle runs. And I do mean massive. Wikipedia still shows South Australian Anna Creek Station as the world's largest stock run at 23,677 square kilometres, that's 9,140 square miles, or in acreage, 5,851,000 square acres. It's larger than many whole countries, and its southern boundary runs along the dingo fence. Cattle stations outside the fence do not generally consider dingoes too much of a problem. It seems like they don't predate cattle in any numbers that concern. And actually many see dingoes as helpful in keeping the rabbit and the kangaroo numbers in check, so there's more feed for the cattle. Though certainly, if numbers do seem high, the pastoralists outside the fence will cull with baits or shooting when necessary. So, in an effort to keep the southeast safe for sheep farmers, and to share the burden of costs between all those further inside the fence, who would also benefit by the work of those on the edges, the idea of joining up, strengthening, and maintaining a continuous exclusion fence to keep the dingoes on one side and the sheep on the other was deemed a worthy idea. 
The theory was the government could assist with the construction and maintenance, dingoes could be cleared out to the east, and all the farmers inside would benefit with protection from stock loss. One difficulty that the Western Australian rabbit-proof fence did not have was that the eastern dingo fence would straddle or follow boundaries across a number of states. And Australian states, right from the beginning, have always had trouble negotiating like adults, even when doing so would enhance trade and bring success to all. Note, for example, that each state insisted on using their own varying railway gauges, and despite Federation in 1901, standardising the interstate tracks to a single gauge only commenced in the 1930s and was only completed in 1995. For years, Sydney-Melbourne passengers had to change trains at the Victoria-New South Wales border. So there was plenty of potential for squabbling over the years, and the subsequent continuous barrier fence was more a fortunate result of determined individual pastoralists and keen government officials rather than a clearly defined and funded complete infrastructure solution. Author of The Dog Fence, James Woodford, undertook a trek following the entire 5,400km fence across 2002-03. Woodford was following in the footsteps of Dinah Percival and Candida Westney, who undertook a similar trek in 1987-88, to gather the stories of those old hands working out on the remote edges of the land there for a book they called Fence People, Yarns from the Dingo Fence. And undertaking these treks were no easy feat, The tracks along the fence are not public land and written permissions must be sought first from both the private landholders and the state fence authorities. Even with such permissions, there are vast distances to cover, far from any infrastructure, supplies, water or communications. And Woodford noted, at times, it was up to 1,000 kilometres between water and fuel points. He reflects that the ongoing maintenance of the fence is still an astounding feat. The fences were originally built using the trunks of often scrubby local trees as uprights, with what I call chicken wire or other small-gauge netting wire stretched between them, like that used on the rabbit-proof fence, though the resulting dingo fence perhaps required more robust strength. Out on the edges of pastoral land, damage is also likely to be caused by feral goats, camels and pigs, native emus and kangaroo, and probably the most destructive of all, particularly in the south, is wombats. The fence also needs to withstand rust and weathering, the drifting sands, bushfires, floods, and simply gravity and inertia acting over time. Hardier materials and steel pickets have been added as repairs have been done over the years, but some of the original now 100-year-old tree trunk posts still form part of the fence in places. Woodford reminds us that the dingo fence is also known as the dog fence, or the wild dog fence, or the barrier fence. And I guess this is a necessary update to its name, as it needs to fend off more than just the dingo. While in the early days the dingoes were what the farmers feared, the pastoralists brought their own domesticated dogs into the environment, and some of these inevitably left the domestic sphere and became feral, some perhaps even breeding with wild dingoes. Indeed, some suggest the most troublesome, and the pack attacks in particular, are more likely to be crossbreeds or domestic dogs gone feral. I listened to a radio program a while back where some farmers were talking about the wild dog problem and the stock losses they currently experience. And I also learned that the most common dog bait used, known here as 1080, is made up of a poison that naturally occurs in many native Australian plants. And so native animals have a very strong tolerance to it. So that makes it effective on the dogs without being a massive danger to the other wildlife, like goannas for example. So that was interesting. And they talk about other control methods, such as using guardian animals, which will ward off the dogs, and fence electrification. I've put a link to that program on the website if you're interested. So the earlier barrier fences grew and connected up. But, in typical fashion, they operate slightly differently in each state, even now, and each has its own authority to manage it. South Australia seems to have got on board first in the mid-1940s, Two significant landholders, realising that what they had built already, dingo-proofing their individual holdings, could be coordinated, extended and developed into continuous barrier fencing. They began lobbying the South Australian government to help manage and maintain a more formal outer perimeter fence so that the work did not have to be replicated on all the internal fencing 
and thus all the stock inside could be secure. In June of 1947, the South Australian Dog Fence Act was passed and the single outside barrier fence across South Australia was formalised, making up around 2,150 kilometres, that's 1,330 miles, of the total. South Australia still has the Dog Fence Board, which manages the access and patrols and maintains their section of the fence. Funding came from levies on stock farmers and from the government. In South Australia, boundary riders are paid to patrol and maintain their sections, generally working alone along the fence. They'd have to be people who enjoy their own company, love that sparse outback environment, including the heat and cold that comes with it, love working so remotely for many weeks at a time, and be incredibly resilient and resourceful. These days, of course, there's radio, and there might be options for carrying satellite communication should anything go wrong, but in the past, you simply needed to, well, to quote from Scott again from the Mawson series a couple of episodes back, find a way or make one should anything go wrong. <laughs> Don't you just love that saying? So the South Australian fence is described as shoulder height, as the dogs can jump quite high, and covered with wire mesh. Woodford described seeing on his trip more than once an emu slamming into the fence at full pelt, sometimes crashing through but generally bouncing off in a feathery flurry and dashing off in a different direction. Kangaroos on occasion would do the same, so the patrol and maintenance is clearly required on a regular basis. One of the most problematic animals to damage the fencing is the wombat. This will be no surprise to anyone in the southeast trying to maintain secure fencing. These little bulldozers of the bush will just force their way through or dig underneath pretty much any fencing that you put up. And both those methods will obviously leave a dingo access point behind them. Wire extended under the ground line helps in slightly deterring their digging efforts, but the better solution more recently implemented in sections of high activity is an electric fence. This is about the only thing that convinces a wombat to rethink its direction. One patrolman stated that the electric fence had reduced the wombat holes under the fence in a 45-kilometre section from 171 wombat holes to two. So that's a good result for the integrity of the fence, <laughs> though the wombats would not be pleased on first encounter. Electric fencing has its own problems, though. While you can remotely power with solar units, the fence has to be clear of undergrowth so it doesn't leak voltage to earth. Voltage can be monitored remotely via radio signals, so this fencing is an option out on arid land where the ground is often or, or can be cleared of undergrowth that would grow upwards and interfere with the current flow. But it may not be a solution for those lucky farmers on good pasture who have the same battle keeping their more lush paddock fencing free of wombat damage. While this seems to be a solution for deterring the wombat from damaging the old fence, it can actually replace the old structure, as it also deters a dingo from attempting to cross too, so it's an increasingly valuable addition to the original fence. Woodford quotes a patrolman saying, quote, You need 200 volts to stop wombats, 800 for dogs, and 2,000 for roos. It doesn't kill them, but geez, they think about coming back for a second dose. <laughs> In the early days, patrolmen sometimes used camels to carry their supplies for a patrol run, which could take many weeks and required the carriage of heavy material and supplies. Now, of course, the track is traversed in a four-wheel drive vehicle, but it can still be a very hostile environment, and one could easily be in substantial trouble if stranded without water, for example. Woodford wrote of having to change a damaged tyre while on the track, and getting back into the cabin of his four-wheel drive, which he had left with all the windows open to reduce heat build-up, he found that the thermometer that he'd left on his passenger seat had burst the bulb, clearly reaching a temperature in excess of the 50 degrees Celsius limit. That's more than 122 Fahrenheit. So the cars certainly heat up out there. In South Australia, those patrolling the fence must provide all their own gear, from the vehicle and tools to food and communication equipment. Driving along the track and continuously scanning the fence for holes would be a challenge for your concentration, but a necessary one. One old patrolman told Woodford about the time way back when he lost 25 pounds while out on the track, a huge amount of money for the day, only to find it caught, blown up against the wire netting fence on his return run three months later. <laughs> so there's incentive to pay attention. On occasion, the fence must cross a major highway where a gate is not a viable option. 
So the integrity of the fence there is maintained by a cattle grid, the theory being that dingoes will not cross the gaps in the grid. <laughs> but I think that might be optimistic. A smart dog with motivation is pretty amazing. I'm sure the wild dingo is no less impressive. Fortunately, the dogs are fairly solitary and territorial, so you would hope that the numbers living around any grid are limited. There's also the problem of the fence having to cross the railway line, and the solution for that gap is described by Woodford as, quote, Six enormous medieval-looking plates are laid down on the rocky ballast between the tracks, three are covered in thousands of nails, and three have arrow-shaped slices of metal. The only way a dingo could get inside the fence would be to tightrope walk along the shiny tracks, unquote. But again, dog lovers amongst you might think, this sounds quite doable if your dog was keen. The modern fence, though, is pretty effective in relation to dingoes, though, so these potential incursions are few, one assumes. One patrolman said, quote, Nothing will stop a dingo if he's really determined. You could build a brick wall along the whole dingo fence, and the dingo will build a ladder and get himself up, or throw a rope over. <laughs> this is a barrier fence meant to keep most of the dogs out. We keep 99% outside the fence, and that's enough for the guys inside to make a living, unquote. So it's fortunate, really, that dingoes do not breed like rabbits. Woodford reported seeing massive feral cats in his journey along the fence, too. And indeed, you see them all over the country, particularly on the edges of country towns. Unbelievably, cats were actually released into the outback in an attempt to control the rabbit numbers. I didn't know that. In 1900, 100 cats were released at Eucla on the edge of the Nullarbor. While there was no discernible effect on the rabbit population, there was a noticeable toll on the small native animals. One couple, Shirley and Ray, who managed the fence near the Coobapedi area, were recorded by Percival and Wesney stating, quote, The cat is by far the worst. We caught 600 cats in the first year we were on the fence. I don't know how many we would have poisoned. Probably thousands. Unquote. And I think that would have been around 1975 they were talking about there. But other creatures bothered them too. Well, surely mainly. <laughs> Quote, when Ray used to repair the fence, he'd dig the holes and I'd stick the netting on the foot. One day, I was going along clipping the foot netting on and all of a sudden I screamed. I stood on a bull ant's nest. They got in the legs of my slacks and, oh, down went my pants. Oh, gosh, I did a dance around. You ought to have heard him laugh. I didn't think it was very funny, unquote. Poor Shirley. Bull ants are aggressive little blighters and they have a very ferocious sting. Now, cats could catch a rabbit, but the smaller native animals and birds were often easier prey and cats continue to have a very deleterious impact on the wildlife in the bush and the outback actually in suburban areas too. Woodford reminds us that Australia has lost more small to medium-sized mammals than any other country, one of the many dubious and sorrowful records we hold. The linear stretches of fencing deflect the wildlife either side, but where there is a right-angle corner, the fence seems to act as a funnel to the animals like kangaroos and emus, and they can be found perished in large numbers at some of these points. The fence, though often traversing quite dull and seemingly uninteresting landscape, actually straddles a number of very interesting areas. Numerous high-quality and valuable fossils have been found in areas close to the fence. Some more valuable complete specimens near that Coobapedi section. It also runs through the Woomera Rocket Range in South Australia. This is a large 122,000 square kilometre area. That's around 75,000 square miles, which was declared a prohibited area in 1947 and set aside for the testing of rockets and other weapons. A number of sheep stations were already sighted within or straddled the range area. Woodford records that there were around 100 pastoralists, their families and staff, along with local indigenous groups in the area too at the time the range was gazetted and so the government built 48 shelters across the stations for them to use during the rocket-firing exercises, rather than go to the expense of rounding them up and moving them off during the tests. More than 13,000 trials have been conducted at Woomera, mostly military. Phone lines were also installed so that warnings about any change to the firing schedule could be relayed to the people in the area. 
Providing phone lines to these remote areas was pretty much unheard of for the time, so that would have been some consolation for their inconvenience. The bunkers were designed to withstand blast or flying debris, but would not have withstood a direct hit. It was felt that the chances of things going that badly wrong were minuscule. They were kept informed of the launch scheduling, and on the planned launch days they'd get a final 15-minute warning call for the impending blast-off, and everyone was expected to take cover in the shelters. Woodford quotes a story recounted from one of the pastoralists, the fruity Mrs. Flo Crombie, <laughs> and I'll abridge it a little. Quote, they sent us notice, first 72 hours, then 24, and at last they told us to take cover in the shelter. Course we weren't in it. In fact, the whole household was standing on the roof of it to get a good look. The rocket went up and everyone was enjoying the show. Then it turned over and began coming down. All the stock hands thought it was falling on them, and it did fall only a few miles away. I turned round to speak to the men, and there wasn't a bastard there, not one bastard, and I was washing underpants for a week after. Ah, <laughs> oh, good story, Flo. During the periods of high activity, many stopped bothering with the shelters, and fortunately there was no harm done to the humans there anyway. I can't find the citation now I'm writing this up, but I'm sure I read that there were some stock casualties. Anyway, it seems these stoic types quite enjoyed the drama of their situation. And the scaredy-cat station hands aside, they generally do make them tough in the outback. The women in particular. Woodford also tells of a station manager named Sharon, who was responsible for maintaining her fence for 15 years. She'd wait for the kids to finish School of the Air on a Friday Arvo, then loaded up the camping equipment for a weekend out tracing her section of the dingo fence. Quote, Even when the children were babies, we'd put them in a bassinet and off we'd go. Unquote. On one trip out, she was attaching the netting wire and accidentally put a nail through her finger, attaching it to the post. Ow. My eyes are watering just thinking of it. Her car was next to her, but she couldn't reach either the radio or the wire cutters. Apparently her children and a station hand were at the camp, which was within sight, but actually a kilometre away, and so they couldn't hear her calling out. Luckily, after some time, her daughter noticed that Mum seemed to have been a long time in the same place, and so rescue was at hand in time. But you can imagine how scary this must have been, particularly if she'd been on her own out there. Well, the story could have gone the way of those adventurers who have to cut off their own arms with a pocket knife to survive, couldn't it? The South Australian fence also passes near a number of well-known outback tourist destinations, such as Coopapedi, the opal capital of the world according to their tourism blurb, the Flinders Ranges, a spectacular folded and faulted mountain range that delights geologists, paleontologists, stargazers and, at certain times of the year, wild flower appreciators, and the Arkarula Wilderness Sanctuary there and home to the native wallaby and bird populations. There's also Lake From, a huge salt lake so white and with such amazing reflectivity, owing to the type and the shape of the crystals formed there, that, Woodford reports, it is used by some satellites to calibrate their instruments as they pass overhead. The New South Wales section, joining the South Australian and the Queensland fences, follows the New South Wales northwest border, covering the smallest linear distance of the three states. The Border Fence Maintenance Board manages their section, and Woodford notes that the fence was high quality on that stretch, as it's relatively well funded in New South Wales, just as well as it does have to keep out some of the highest numbers of wild dogs counted. The fence patrol workers there are given a wage, a house to live in and a vehicle to undertake the task, as well as all the necessary tools and equipment. Like much of the dingo fence, it started its life as a rabbit-proof structure in the late 1800s, only being beefed up for dingo proofing in the 1940s and 50s, as the continuous fence developed. While the public is prohibited from driving along the fence line, as I mentioned earlier, many visitors to Cameron Corner that's the survey point marking the right-angle corner of New South Wales border against South Australia and Queensland, can see the structure there, with the interpretive centre giving visitors information about the fence. For more than 30 years, Queensland's fence perimeter alone ran a distance more than the entire three-state fence today, covering up to 5,680 kilometres within the state, 
That's 3,530 miles. It would have made the total three-state fence more than 8,600 kilometres in length. But quality along the old Queensland expanse was not always high, and by 1980, Queensland had rationalised their existing fences by almost half. Much of their perimeter fence was moved inwards to the south and east, and they improved the standard, resulting in a distance closer now to 2,600 kilometres for their section. Of course, the fence fluctuates to a more minor extent all the time, as repairs and minor changes are made, so all distances must inevitably be approximate. While the Queenslanders were a little late coming to the party in providing a high-quality barrier fence, they seem to be making up for it now. The Queensland fence is generally 1.8 metres high, extending 30 centimetres under the ground, with netting at ground level extending another 1.5 metres outwards along the ground, and is managed by the Queensland Department of Agriculture and Fisheries. While wombats are the bane of the patrolmen in the south, the Queenslanders have feral pigs to contend with, and they're much the same in the barrelling through the fence stakes, but they're also meaner and more dangerous to deal with. The department has two-person crews patrolling and maintaining around 300 kilometre sections of fence each, on a weekly basis. They provide the vehicles and equipment, camps for the crews, and full-time graders to maintain access tracks alongside the fence. One man patrolled the fence there for 20 years and calculated he'd driven more than 1.4 million kilometres looking across at that fence. That's 870,000 miles. As I mentioned before, the job requires a certain type of dedication. Though not part of the continuous dingo fence, Western Australia also has its own 1,100 kilometre or 685 mile barrier fence for wild dogs, protecting its southwest corner, which is managed by their Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development. Once again, much of this fence began its life in 1900 as a rabbit proof construction and developed into an emu proof barrier and now the dingo or wild dog barrier. There's no doubt dingoes can be a problem for stock. And we know they can be dangerous to humans, particularly in areas where they more frequently interact with humans and lose their fear and avoidance behaviours. Many people inside and outside of Australia will be familiar with the devastating case of Azaria Chamberlain in 1980. The Chamberlain family were camped at Uluru, which at that time was also known as Ayers Rock, where packs of dingoes were known to be a nuisance to the campers. Nine-week-old Azaria was taken from her bassinet inside the tent by a dingo and was never found. Compounding the horror of that loss was the false accusation that rather than a dingo taking the baby, her mother, Lindy, had murdered her and somehow disposed of her body. Lindy spent four years in prison before clothing that Azaria was wearing when she was taken was found at the base of the rock after a police search following another unrelated tragedy. This finding led to a reassessment of the very dodgy evidence used to convict Lindy, and an inquest that followed exonerated her. No bodily remains of poor little Azaria have ever been found. Fraser Island off the Queensland coast also has a resident wild dingo population, which for years has caused some problems for campers. Signs everywhere advise against any interaction with them and warn about the dangers of keeping your food in your tent, etc., I have been there myself several years ago and actually had a dingo nip at my heels while others looked on. No doubt, in the natural way of hunters, they would have been assessing my potential weakness. Unfortunately, in 2001, a nine-year-old boy was not so lucky, being attacked and killed by two dingoes. The rangers culled several of the dingoes after that horrific incident, but aggressive and threatening behaviour has been reported since and campers are advised to set up only inside the fenced areas on the island. In April this year, a sleeping 14-month-old child was dragged out of a canvas camping annex on Fraser Island, and while the father was able to scare the dingo into releasing his son and chase off the nearby pack, that child was severely injured and had to be medevaced to nearby Harvey Bay. Apparently the family was camped outside of the compound area, and they would not have been alone in failing to appreciate that these animals were such a potential danger. I think dingoes look so much like dogs that it's natural for people 
particularly those very familiar and comfortable with big dogs, to underestimate the risk. They forget that wild dingoes are not dogs, but are actually cunning and impressive predators, as they need to be in the wild, and that they need to be treated with extreme caution. One South Australian pastoralist, who lost 3,000 sheep in one 12-month period, still maintains a grudging admiration and a lot of respect for the dingo, saying, quote, They breed dogs today, and they're just toys. But when you see the real thing, the dingo, they're just beautiful, and they're so tough and strong, they can bring down an animal three times their size, unquote. Overall, though, the massive dingo fence really is a remarkable structure with its humble and rather desperate beginnings in trying to hold back the inevitable tide of the rabbit plague, it has been much more successful as a dingo barrier. The early days of building and maintaining the initial sections must have been quite an engineering feat, along with managing the logistics of carting all the heavy materials across those vast expanses. We know Aussies like big things. The big pineapple, the big prawn, the big merino to name but a few. But the really big one is the dingo fence stretching quietly across the country, nearly coast to coast, in its effort to keep the dingoes at bay. I say quietly, but actually it may not always be quiet. John Rose and Hollis Taylor have travelled to various fences across Australia to make fence music, using sections of the dingo fences, the rabbit-proof fences, and even a security fence around an unnamed US military installation here. Apparently the fence wires vibrate in the wind and resonate and can be struck or quivered with a bow. In much the same way as a violin string, each section then produces its own tone and John has made recordings of these sounds. I'll put a couple of links to their work on my webpage in case fence music might be your thing. It's actually quite mesmerising. Before ending his time tracing the Queensland fence, Woodford recorded one of the patrolmen reflecting, quote, I'll bet you it's the longest time machine in the world. There are heaps of objects along it from the past. Bottles, tyres, machinery parts, old buttons. There are old camps of the patrolmen who passed through, unquote. And that's an interesting thought. Though once again, we may have to give the oldest linear construction, which collects debris from its use, to the Chinese and their wall, given that the rabbit and dingo fence tracks are not really much more than 100 years old in most places. But if we consider the ways the fence must be crisscrossing the song lines and the trackways of the First Nation peoples, it certainly resides on land steeped in its use and history for many tens of thousands of years. And who knows? Maybe that fence music resulting from the interaction with wind and sand blowing across the landscape alludes to some of that ancient past. But of course, as is often the case, it is unlikely to be a construction that has brought benefit to the local indigenous inhabitants on the whole, instead creating another barrier carving up their ancestral lands. There may be adjacent stock runs on land now back in the hands of traditional owners, and those stations would gain the benefits from the pest control perhaps. But at the time Woodford wrote in 2004, no Indigenous rangers or patrol staff worked on monitoring and maintenance of the fence either, though that may have changed since. While the majority of pastoralists would not do without it, the dingo fence does have its critics. Regular and recent research suggests that dingoes could help balance the ecology, keeping the middle level introduced predators like foxes and cats in check. But of course other changes in our environment will remain, unless we cease farming sheep, so the impact might be difficult to assess. On the other hand, several recent reports also advise great value in extending and expanding the fence to increase the dog-proofed area available, so no doubt the debate will continue. Over the years, the fence building materials have greatly improved in strength and durability, and its future seems likely to be heading towards more electrification perhaps. While the range of the dingo across Australia has been reduced by these barriers, there is still a healthy population of dingoes outside the fence, so keeping them out of the southeast does not seem to have caused them too much grief. So that brings our look at the dingo fence to a close. I hope you enjoyed pondering that massive wire structure snaking across our land. 
I'll be moving on to a meteor, more well-known historical incident next month. <laughs> Back to history, more traditional. If you subscribe to the podcast on your preferred player, that mystery story should then arrive in your pod feed next month. You could also sign up for the newsletter that comes out just before the upcoming episodes, with links to the page, references and images. And you know what? If you're loving the show, and you can spare a few beans to help support it, there are options to donate available on the website too. Before I wrap up, I want to recommend another fantastic podcast that you might like to check out this month. I started listening to the History of Aotearoa New Zealand podcast when it first started, and it's already developed into a fascinating collection of traditional Maori stories and cultural explanations along with the general history, working through a chronological structure. Thomas is enthusiastic, knowledgeable and easy to listen to. It is great to get the background on the history of our neighbours. Highly recommended. And of course the link to History of Aotearoa, New Zealand, will be on the Australian Histories podcast website. Also there, as usual, will be the reference list for this episode and links and images that I may have mentioned in the show. Thanks for joining me again this month and thanks for your support. I hope to have the next episode ready for the last Friday of next month. So have a safe and happy few weeks and we'll talk then. Cheers.